On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to catch up on a tragic story from about a year ago from Dundas. Susan Claremont will be here to explain. It is a sad story with some new information you're going to want to hear. We're going to talk about D-Day. June 6th this year will be the 75th anniversary. Lots of stuff will be going on in town to honor, commemorate, celebrate, whatever word you wish to choose, D-Day beginning tomorrow and... It's Stanley Cup playoff time, which means the Vegas Golden Knights and their pregame shows are going to be back in business, and we have the woman whose voice you heard all last spring narrating the excitement down there, and guess what? She's got some news. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, At the Hamilton Spectator in the newsroom, there is a board that can track to some degree, I'm not sure how it all works, but can track which stories that are on the spec website are getting a lot of reads, which ones are getting good traction and which stories are very, very popular. And I made sure I was allowed to talk about this today. And I am because the story that we want to talk about right now was running away with it. More people reading this story today than any other by a landslide with good reason. It is a truly compelling, unbelievably tragic but truly compelling story from here in our community. Uh, it's written by Susan Claremont, who, along with Nicole O'Reilly, have written this thing. It is, uh, it's a two-part series about Al and Carla Rutherford. It's called Dying Words. Now, some of you will remember Al and Carla Rutherford. Others of you, the name may be somewhat familiar, but you're not really sure. It's not on the tip of your tongue. Others of you have never heard it before. So let me bring in Susan Claremont, columnist with The Hamilton Spectator and one of the authors of this to join us. Susan, how are you tonight? Hi, I'm good, Scott. Uh, why don't we start at the near the end of their story, because that's frankly where most people, if they do remember Al and Carla Rutherford, they're going to know them from. Uh, t- talk a little bit, tell a little bit of the story about the very end of their life and about their story and why we know about them now. Yeah, uh, last summer, Al and Carla uh, died in a fire at their home in Dundas. Uh, a horrific blaze, uh Carla died in the house. Al managed to escape, but died a few hours later. It was uh, just a, a terrible tragedy on a, a tiny little street in Dundas, a greeting court where everybody knows each other, and they were a very, very popular um, couple in the neighborhood. And we, I mean, there are fires that happen other places before, and we're going to get into some of the details of why this is also a story that w- has been written about. But there was a, one particular part of the story that was truly uh, horrifying, if uh, I don't know any other word for it, and that was what happened with Al when this fire broke out. T- tell the story of, of his last moments, because it's, I mean, it really is, it, it, I mean, I hate to say, I hate to even bring it up, but it really is horrendous, but it's, it's memorable. It's so horrendous. It, it really is. Uh, so Al managed to escape uh, while the fire was blazing, and he wound up on his next-door neighbor's front porch at 3.30 in the morning, knocked on the door, pounded on the door until someone answered. Al was so badly burned, burns to 80% of his body, that his neighbor did not know who was standing there she didn't recognize him and despite the fact that al was literally dying he managed to ask for help uh for his wife who was still inside the burning house and he also managed a few other 
dying words. And that's where we pick up the story um, of Carla and Alan Rutherford's death. I, I honestly can't remember a similar story ever around here. I mean, even, even in the greater area around here, I mean, uh, you people will remember from in the eighties, the Joey Filion story, but that was a, that's a long time ago. And he lived, I, I can't remember another one like this. It's unusual for many, many reasons. Uh, it's, it's rare for people to die in house fires. It's even more rare for people to die in house fires that have been deliberately set. And we knew, the community knew within days of that fire uh, that it was suspicious. Hamilton Police Homicide Unit were investigating. So that here's where we start getting into the, I mean, that's all interesting stuff for sure, but where we get into the really interesting stuff, because you say where it was intentionally set. How do we know at this point, because it hasn't gone to court yet, how do we know that this was intentionally set? Well, Hamilton Police and the Ontario Fire Marshal's Office have done extensive investigations, and their conclusion is that it was deliberately set. This has been called an arson uh, from four days after the fire happened. Uh, And then in September of this year, I did an interview with the lead homicide investigator who went even further and said that this was, was murder and that Al and Carla were the targets. So we know then that this was intentionally set. What's going to be at question in the trial is going to be who intentionally set it then. Correct. One of the things that you say in the story is that the family, of the Rutherford family, was not involved in this story. I, I can't think you were probably no. too surprised considering who all is involved in this, and I don't mean just the victims. Yes. So, um, you know, there are sometimes when, when I write about uh, murders where the family chooses not to, the family of the victim chooses not to speak. But more often than not, they do. They, they want the opportunity to talk about the fond memories that they have of, of the person they've lost. And they are also often looking for justice and, and want to speak out about that. Um, this case, though, this one's different. Um, the family of the Rutherfords, and, and it's a blended marriage. Um, both Carla and Alan had been previously married. Uh, Carla has two grown sons. Alan has two grown daughters. And in this case, none of the none of the children uh, participated in the story. Um, and there's a good reason for that. One of them. Uh, is in jail right now facing two charges of first-degree murder for the murder of his mother, Carla, and his stepfather, Alan. You write, and very early in the story, that when Al came to the neighbor's house and you said he said some other words, some last words, he says, it was rich, he did it for the money. That was the, That is what's quoted in the piece. Where does that come from? How do we know that, that is, that's what he actually said? Because he's not around to tell us that now. Right. So Rich Taylor is is the one who's been arrested for the murders and is in jail. Um, We know that because Nicole and I spent nine months 
talking to people about this case. We, you know, reconstructed the night of the fire. We have been to all of Rich's court appearances. We have dug through um, all kinds of public records uh, associated with, with him and with the family. And we have interviewed many, many people who are associated with the family and with this case. One of the other things you say in here right away is, uh, which I thought was interesting because we don't usually see this written all that often. Uh, Here's a quote. The spectator independently verified all details. Why did you feel the need to put that in to to make it clear? Because that's that's journalism practice in general. But why did you feel the need that that should be written into the story? Because the information we've uncovered with our investigation is is crucial information. It it. You know, it could make the difference between um, a guilty or not guilty verdict uh, when it's presented as evidence in court. Um, And we are, you know, we, we want our readers to know that this is not just gossip, that this is not just something we heard from. Uh, one person, and it may or may not be true or got from one source. This is something that we have checked repeatedly in many, many different ways. And do you believe that some of the stuff that you have is new that maybe investigators might not have? Uh, No, I don't think we've uncovered anything that is new to investigators. I, I doubt that that's the case. Um, there, there were some things we learned along the way that I suspect they don't know, but um, but we did not include them in our story because uh, we didn't verify it to the to a level that we were comfortable with. So, um, I no, I don't think there were any probably any surprises in the story for the investigators. Let me ask you two journalism questions about this that I think people may wonder about when they read this piece. And it is a great piece. And again, it's called uh, Dying Words. They can read it online at thespec.com right now. Uh, The first one is this. Is there any risk in you guys running this story now before a trial that you could taint a jury or that you could somehow change what happens in the courtroom? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a good question. And it's one that, that we considered very carefully. Um, the short answer is no. Uh, we are still probably several years away from uh, Rich Taylor's trial. And so the, the further away you are from the trial, the more um, latitude a, a journalist has to report the story um, because it is further away from jury selection. And even when it comes to jury selection, I think that there's a misconception that jurors have to come into the courtroom as a blank slate, having absolutely no knowledge of the case that's in front of them. And that's not true. What the law says is, can a potential juror take anything that they do know about the case, anything they've read in the spectator or heard from neighbors or any um, preconceived notions that they have, can they take all that and set it aside and base their verdict on the evidence that they hear in the courtroom? That's the real test. So when you look at a case like Bosma, for instance, there really wasn't 
anything that came up in trial, nothing, nothing substantial, nothing major that hadn't been reported prior to the trial. You know, most of the, the most important facts, most, most important evidence from that case had already been reported on before the trial even started. And, you know, they still managed to get a jury. They still managed to have the trial here in Hamilton, and they still managed to get a verdict. So, um, you know, that trial had much more publicity than this case has. There's a lot more I wish I could ask. We are out of time, sadly, but uh, you can read this. It's, again, one more time. Dying Words, The Arson Killings of Carla and Alan Rutherford. It's by Susan Claremont, who you've just been listening to, and Nicole O'Reilly at thespec.com. It'll be in the paper tomorrow. Susan, appreciate it. Great job. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The 75th anniversary of D-Day is coming up this June. You knew that, I assume. I hope. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, but there is tons of stuff going on this over the next couple of months to commemorate that, to celebrate that, to honor that uh, all over the city of Hamilton tomorrow, beginning tomorrow, when students across the city, at, I don't, we'll find out in a moment how many schools, but dozens and dozens of schools across the city are going to begin learning about it through a program at the Hamilton Spectator, a newspaper and education program where they are going to be taught, reminded, in some cases, it'll be one or the other about what D-Day is. Well, let me introduce two guys who are very involved in the organization of the events that are coming up over the next little while. Jeff Day is with the Hamilton Spectator and is an organizer of the commemoration events. And Dave Rohr is president and CEO of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, also very involved. Gentlemen, thanks for being here today. Our Hi, pleasure. Scott. Our pleasure. This, um, when you talk about it, Dave, when you talk about D-Day... I'm assuming most people understand. They know the word, if nothing else. From your perspective, what's the significance? Why is this such an important thing to honor? Because there's lots of moments in wartime and everything else that we think of. Well, D-Day, you know, World War II was a a, a huge event in the history of the world, and D-Day is the largest amphibious landing ever in the history of the world. 156,000 troops landed, and and over five beachheads, 50 miles of, uh, of France, and, and they were trying to push the Third Reich back, and, and it was a turning point of World War II. It was a point at which uh, finally the Allies realized that they were going to win this war. They were going to win the campaign and defend freedom, and uh, the sacrifice was huge. You know, most of the soldiers, Navy, Navy seamen, airmen, they were all young kids. They were like 18, 19, 21 years old. Less. And, and 156,000 of them. And when you look at it, it, it was a turning tide of World War II, and based on uh, nobody hit their objectives that day of the five beaches that they were landed on. Nobody hit their objectives, but within six days, all the beaches were connected, and 324,000 troops were on, in situ. So it was a tremendous battle. Jeff, the thing about D-Day, though, is it's a, it's a name that's become a phrase that you can use almost for anything. We hear it all, It's not just used as D-Day, capital D-Day. Anything that's going to happen now, if you've got something of a big event coming up, it's D-Day is whenever. Is it hard to remind people, especially who aren't old enough to have remembered it, what the real D-Day was? I think so, and, and that's a good good point because a lot of people, and I've been told that a lot of children especially think D-Day is doomsday. Uh, there's a lot of things that don't equate to the actual D-Day, which is just the name of the date. 
And that's why, you know, the spectator and thanks to Dave and the rest of the people at the Warplane Heritage Museum, we were able to put together this program for kids between ages uh, grade 6 and 12 who are going to learn over the next eight weeks what it was like for a, a teenager, their age or almost, to go through something like this. They need to know these things. This is a, a chance for them uh, to feel, hopefully through our words and stories and things, what it was like. And I don't think people get the chance to do that too often and certainly be able to put young children and younger adults in that position is, is unique. Dave, one of the interesting things Hollywood has done in some cases, a very good job. Uh, sh- uh, Saving Private Ryan, perfect example. A great job of illustrating this, yet it's kind of a difficult thing to ask a grade six student to watch this. So how do you make that, even though it's there and you could, you have the tools to, sh- to make people understand, how do you do that? Well, what we try to do is, you know, nobody wants to glorify combat because it's a failure of every other means to avoid it. But there are times when you have to defend your way of life and your freedom and your your values and your ethics. So what we want to do is we want to honor the service, the duty, and sacrifice, which is the heritage of of those in in sixth grade or younger. And it's part of our Canadian history. You know, we had uh, 14,000 Canadians in D-Day. And over uh, 359 didn't get off the beach. And there were over 1,000 casualties on that day. And they were asked to do a job which was very difficult, and and they went and did that job. So what we want to teach the youth is that our freedom, our way of life, and our history was based on the sacrifice of those that went before us and defended our freedom when it was at risk. And Jeff, it really is difficult, though, I think, for kids to understand this because it is entirely unlike anything that we have today. And again, not, not that Saving Private Ryan was a documentary, but as you watch the beginnings of that and you see the eyes of the, and they did a, a remarkable job of illustrating it, but we don't have anything in our life that we can compare to that or point to and say, I, I understand that. Not, not even close. And because of that, well, we, you know, we've had uh, lots of Canadians involved in some monumental things since then, of course, in Korea and certainly over in the uh, Middle East. But uh, this is something that we really wanted to let people know that their heritage be, be evolved from this. It became a true Canadian thing. Like we just said, there were five beaches and the entire world, there were five beaches allocated and two were for American and two were for the British and one was for Canada. And that became enormous for this country in terms of its growth and potential and rising in stature. But even then, I mean, again, today, if you're a 16-year-old, you still have to get a note to go on a field trip for school. <laughs> oh, I know. And you had 16-year-olds that were landing on the beach getting killed that That's day. Right. It, it is a completely different world. Well, and, you know, and another good reason why this is a great time to do this and probably the last great time to do this is because a lot of the veterans who came back from the Second World War, uh, for any number of reasons, really didn't want to talk about it. And it wasn't until they turned 80 years old, almost, a lot of them en masse decided that it was time to talk to their children about what they, what they encountered and what they learned. And this is the last chance we have to talk to these people. At our gala coming up on June the 1st, we have four D-Day veterans. 95 to 99 years old who are going to be there that night at this gala. Dave, just before we carry on, when I say commemorate, celebrate, is celebrate an appropriate word for this? Uh, Yes, in the sense that we're celebrating a victory, a victory for freedom, a victory for our way of life. Uh, We're celebrating, uh, we're remembering the sacrifice, the duty and the service, but we're celebrating their success. 
So, Jeff, one of the first things, and this one starts tomorrow. We're going to get to all the other stuff coming up. But tomorrow, the newspaper and education program with The Spectator, which is tied into this, starts. And you mentioned before, right. grade 6 to grade 12. What do they do with this? So something comes out in the... Like, does everybody in their paper tomorrow get something with this? Or will they see something? Well, newspapers... Well, yes, everybody who gets a paper tomorrow will, will re- see the first story about what uh, Operation Overlord was. And in the schools that are participating, which is now apparently uh, because of what the curriculum writer did that we worked with, this has evolved into something that's now going across the province. We, there's more than 125 wow. schools, uh, not just in Hamilton, but across Toronto and, and throughout the province that are taking this story that will appear tomorrow, and they have a curriculum built around that that will teach them about the various questions that come out of that story to learn about what Operation Overlord was. And then for the next eight weeks, as we progress towards the gala and June, June the 6th, different aspects of, of uh, what D-Day was. And so what they'll have assignments or something. Oh, yeah. They, so they, they can't just no. fall asleep in class and not learn it. They're going to have curriculum. to do something yeah. with it. They're, to, they're doing research. They're finding out about, you know, how we research things and how they can learn about what was happening uh, to Canada because it was, as was voted by Canadians in 1999, the number one news story of the entire 20th century for Canadians. D-Day. D-Day. The number one story. So Dave, that is, uh, and that's a hugely important thing because again, we talked about it before, but if you forget history, it's a cliche, I understand, but it's very easy to do that. Now that Jeff said before the break, there are four left, four, I mean, there there are not many left, right? No, 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 they're they're not. And we're really fortunate to have uh, Lieutenant uh, General Romer will be with us. And he was a 19 year old flying an unarmed P-51 fighter over the beaches, a Canadian P-51. And he was providing uh, situation reports back uh, to the Allies as to how the battle was going on the ground. He's with us. He's 94, and uh, he's he's and then he's leaving from the dinner, and he's flying the next day to actually go to Normandy for June 6th. Mm-hmm. Well, June 1st is the dinner, right? right? Correct. And it's at the Warplane Heritage Museum. Tell me a little bit about if someone wants to go, what why would why would somebody want to go, especially if they don't have a direct connection to D-Day? Well, they'd want to go because it's going to be a just a wonderful evening to start with. We have the uh, the world famous Glenn Miller Orchestra from Florida. They're going to play three sets. So where can you dance to the Glenn Miller Orchestra uh, for one? The second thing is you're going to be able to. Uh, Hamilton is a garrison city, so we've got great support from the Hamilton Spectator, from CACH, from you guys, but also the regiments in town. The Royal, you know, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry and the Argyles and Southerners. They were in. Uh, this operation overlord and they're they're going they're going to be there they're going to we're going to have the pipes and drums bands are going to put on a presentation during the dinner we're going to have an auction we have a bunch of prizes uh, a cruise that you can bid on uh, we're going to we have an airplane that flew in d-day and we're going to have it'll be the backdrop of the dinner there can't uh, be many of those not only not many left there couldn't have been many of those that no. actually made it back period that's correct and, and this one you know Hamilton has the largest flying museum in Canada and non-government funded. The Hammers got it. <laughs> Toronto can't have it. Toronto couldn't keep their museum open. I mean, I, that it makes me so proud <laughs> that the Hammer has it. And we've got the only Lancaster, one of two in the world, that also flew on D-Day because uh, 419 Squadron flew 
and started at 12.30 that morning. And what they were doing, they were going inland, trying to take out the bridges and the roadways so that the German reinforcements couldn't get to the beach. So uh, both those airplanes are historic, mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to be there. Somebody's going to, a uh, table for 10 is going to win a draw to fly in that airplane. Uh, it's incredible. Like, what they've done up there, and what yeah. the, this is going to be for as many as 1,000 people. And it's yeah. a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is never going to happen again. We've got not just the four D-Day veterans. We've got another dozen World, uh, War, World II. War II veterans mm-hmm. are going to be there. This is a chance to honor them like you've never honored them before. Well, there's something else that... Now, I don't even know if I'm allowed to ask this question because sure. I heard something around the office with Jeff, and I don't even know if this is public yet, so I may be blowing something. I don't know. But this is right around the time of the Canadian Open mm-hmm. with the golf tournament, and you've got all these guys from all around the world coming, and if I'm allowed to say it, sure. you're doing something pretty cool with, with, the, with the golfers who are coming in. It's, it's, well, it starts on June the 1st with the, with the dance, and... Uh, like I said, it's, that's the one chance to do that. Because of the interest that this has garnered in the in the in the community, with people like Ron Foxcroft and the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the Canadian Open representatives, they've all wanted to be a part of this as well. So, thanks to Dave and the Warplane Heritage Museum and and the Canadian government, we are going to be able to fly over the Canadian Open on June the sixth, June the sixth, the first day of the tournament, the actual anniversary, in a flyover that they're going to stop to play and allow the players and everybody there to look up in the sky and see on 75 years later to the day what the planes were like coming over. And there may be, though, am I correct, there may be some golfers' relatives in the plane? We're asking. We're asking. Yeah. Yes, we're there asking are, if, it, yep. and if, if, it, if it, we can work it out, we'll do it. Absolutely. And, and, and then later that night, they'll be, uh, they'll be, Dave will be flying then, a plane over top of the Tiger the Cat the uh, Argonaut preseason game. And, of course, the Tiger Cats are giving two tickets. Anybody that buys a ticket of the gala is getting two tickets to that game that night and on the 6th. It, is, uh, it is remarkable. Uh, sadly, we're out of time. Uh, Dave Rohr, though, if you're, by the way, when you're hearing Dave's voice and you're saying, I've heard that name before, he's the guy who flies the Lancaster all the time. You were the one who flew it over to England a couple years ago, right? Yes, uh, with five other guys. 2014 <laughs> already? Holy yeah, cow. Yeah. All right. Time we're going back uh, maybe another five years. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, guys, it is, uh, it is a great thing. If somebody was interested in looking into tickets or doing something else, where do they find it out? Where do they get information? Go to our website, www.warplane.com. Go to events. You can buy your ticket online, and if you have any problems, call 905-679-4183 and ask for Emily, and she will help you. And one last thing is yes. we want to make this for the veterans of all time, all Canadian veterans. Ask about the discount that you can get if you're a veteran. Of any time? Uh, if you're a Canadian war, uh, if you've been in Canadian forces at any point in your life, it's half price. Excellent. Absolutely. Uh, That's June 1st, uh, Newspaper and Education. If you have a kid in school, be sure to be looking for that tomorrow. Dave Rohr, Jeff Day, thanks for coming in. Our Our pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Stanley Cup playoffs begin tonight. They are kicking off. I think the first face-off is in 20 minutes from now, thereabouts. Now, I hope that last year, whether you are a hockey fan or not, I hope that last year as the Stanley Cup playoffs were going on, you were making a point of tuning in at least to the openings of the Vegas Golden Knights games because the pregame festivities last year were something we have not seen before, and that is not an overstatement at all. Here was part 
of what was involved in Vegas Golden Knights pregame ceremonies last year, and I won't give the complete list. There was a, and these are in most of the games, a sword duel involving a Golden Knight slaying a cape-wearing opponent at center ice, some kind of lantern-carrying wanderer foretelling some sort of prophecy. There was a drum line, glowing glasses, on-ice animation, music that seems like it came from the medieval times or Canada's Wonderland collection, the Blue Man Group, flags, fireworks, streamers, smoke, strobe lights, cheerleaders, a mascot, a siren, a 20-foot-tall, 2,400-pound helmet descending from the rafters. There was a castle. There was Jeremy Roenick. There were readings of preseason predictions that the home team wouldn't do well. There were scenes from Apocalypse Now, followed by the blowing of the cavalry bugle on the screen. There was classical choral music of o, o Fortuna. There was a heavy metal version of Wagner's Rise of the Valkyries. And if that wasn't enough, capping it all off was some incredible narration that included lines like, fate has chosen our opponent, spoken by a very British-sounding woman with incredible gravitas. Now, I don't know what's happening this year, so let us bring in that woman with that now famous voice. Eileen Dugan is a voice actress from Buffalo. She joins us now. Eileen, thanks for doing this today. Hi, good evening. I have lived in Southern Ontario all my life, uh, Toronto, Hamilton. I know Buffalo very well. I know many Buffalonians. The voice that you had, the accent you had, was absolutely not Buffalo when you did that last year. <laughs> no, it is definitely not. <laughs> I hate to even imagine. I don't know. Maybe I don't hate it. Maybe it would have been fun to hear what a cheek to Waga accent would have sounded like for the Vegas opening. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like Irv Weinstein talking about a four-alarm blaze in North Tonawanda. That's right. <laughs> How in the world did a woman from Buffalo... A voice actress for sure, so someone who has a history in this, but how did you end up as the voice of Vegas last year? Um, the Vegas Knights contacted a producer in Ohio who contacted a producer I work with quite often in Buffalo of Chameleon Communications, and they were looking for what they described as a Judy Dench kind of Game of Thronesy voice. And I do, I've done a lot of British stuff over the years, so Kim said, I know, I know she can do that. So I came in and read, and they were very happy with the sound. And then we just kept going. But at that time, we had no idea how far they were going to go. So it was, you know, a bit of a lark, and then it got increasingly exciting and more exposure, <laughs> and it was great. Before I get into that part of it, uh, just a little bit more about your background. What is your background in voice acting and acting in general? Um, I, you know, I studied in college, and then I went to a place called the National Shakespeare Company Conservatory after that for a while. And then I've been acting in Buffalo and around here since I'm much younger, <laughs> for places like the Cavanoke and Irish Classical and Shakespeare in the Park, and then I've been doing voiceovers since my early 20s. I just made a demo for someone, and, you know, it's, it's great when it happens. <laughs> so you, you don't have to get dressed up or anything. No, well, that's true. That is absolutely true. It's just like radio right now. I'm, I'm not even going to tell you what I'm wearing, but it's not nice. Um, so th when you go in to do the audition or to do the read for this, you had a pretty good idea even ahead of time what they were looking for. You weren't having to make it up on the fly. Oh, no, they give you the copy, and they had described the voice. So, you know, I knew the kind of over-the-top melodrama. Yeah. You know? It's very, very old school. And, the, it, it, you know, as the guy from Vegas says, you know, you can't go too far. It can't be too much. It's Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was and true. I have you. I don't know how much time we have, but I have a little announcement. Yesterday when I talked to you, I, I didn't know if I was coming back this year. Yes. I heard from them this morning. And? 
So I'm going to do some spots for the playoffs. Outstanding. See, I was going to get to that later, but yeah, that's fine. Well, I'll, 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 how long you had. So no, I'm no. I'm well, very, very excited to have been uh, contacted again. Yeah, so when I was, just for the for the listeners, when I was talking to Eileen yesterday, I said, why don't you come on, because I'd love to chat with you about this, but you had no idea at that point if this was going to be happening again. So great news. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, when you started, though, last year, when you look at the script, do the scripts mm-hmm. that they gave you, after you got the job, when they sent the script, and I'm assuming they would send you the script and you would do the voicing at home and they just send it back? No, no, I go to a studio here. I don't have it okay. in a home studio, so I go to the I go to Chameleon. But it was point is it wasn't in Vegas. You were doing it from home. Oh no no yeah I'm all patched in. Okay. Like there's three there's Vegas on the line and then this gentleman um, in Ohio and then the Chameleon people here all talking on the line at the same time. Did you have production notes on the script? Like, did you know what you were going to be voicing? What was going to be going on while your voice was going to be talking? Um, they tell me somewhat, you know, um, I don't have a visual, but they, uh, the, the Vegas guy, Johnny Greco, will, will say to me, and here's where the knights are fighting, and we need a real, you know, a build to this part, and then something happens, and now it should sound sad and scary. But the text itself kind of tells you that, you know, you sort of feel it. Because, you know, I've read a lot of text. So sure. You kind of get the feeling of what, what would be cool here. How far in advance were you getting? Because e- each one was different. Each game, they had a slightly different script. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. You were talking about the production before. The first time I saw it on YouTube with the the dis- teams disappearing on the ice, you know, the kind of laser production thing that goes on on the ice. Amazing. And I forget which one. Is it Jets that is the airplane one? Yes. Yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm guessing by the fact that you had to ask me about which one was the Jets. You're not. A, you're probably not a diehard hockey fan. Would that be a fair <laughs> guess? Well, I love to go and watch hockey and I've been to Sabres games and really enjoy the game live. I don't. Wa- I don't follow you know whole leagues and build up the playoffs and stuff. I was kind of watching the Knights this year because I was really hoping to be part of it. It was very exciting. I mean, the Cinderella story and the unexpectedness of every time they called and said, "It's another round. It's another game." It was, <laughs> Well, I can tell you something that I don't believe that, and you know, I'm sure you know all about Hockey Night in Canada. You live in Buffalo. You're very familiar. Mm, I don't think that Hockey Night in Canada has ever shown an entire like eight or nine minute pregame display from a game ever before. And last year they suddenly just cleared the deck and said, oh, it's Vegas. We got to, we got to give the 10 (laughs) minutes to be able to do this. So it was, did you ever know? I watched some of the online stuff where people were commenting, like I heard hockey people saying, this is awful. This is not hockey. And then other people going, but it's Vegas, baby. You know, (laughs) it it is. Now, did you though, when you saw this, did you ever, because at each round it got bigger and more elaborate and more crazy. Was there at any point, when you even said to yourself, wow, uh, this is a little over the top. I'm a theater person. (laughs) (laughs) No such thing. (laughs) No, and then when one of the guys said, because I kept teasing them and saying, if they they get to the finals, will you fly me out to Vegas and I'll do it live? And, you know, so it was kind of a running joke and he said, would you be willing to wear a medieval costume? And I'm like, I'm wearing a medieval costume right now. What are you saying? (laughs) When 
don't I wear a medieval costume? <laughs> that's just that's just at home. It's just at home. It's just at the store. What uh, was what was your reaction the very first time you saw it? Wow. I mean, it was really exciting. I had, uh, you know, my nephew and I were texting back and forth, and he was really psyched because he's a fan of the team. And a lot of, you know, I, I also teach um, theater classes at Canadian College, and a lot of students were. It, it, it's just fun because it's so out of what I normally do, and it got so much recognition and fun. But I was, I was blown away by the pure spectacle. I mean, they had the blue man. <laughs> yeah. But I love the the knights on the big castle shooting those arrows that, that look like they're going onto the ice, but they're really, I don't know, lasers or something. Um, so that's a really cool part. The guy with the big curled horn. There was no shortage of things to look at. Let's put it that way. No, and I can't imagine what the sound... I mean, again, I got a huge kick out of when the voice came out when the, the, the thing started, and the whole crowd gets super quiet for a minute and kind of listens to it, and then they go crazy. And it, it's, it's really... Eileen, you said that people started to recognize it. How long did it take for people back home, either who knew you or who knew of you, how long did it take for people to catch on that that was you doing it? Because well, it's, it's not your voice. I mean, it's your voice, no, but it's, it's not, not your but talking I mean, like voice. I said, I've done a lot of British stuff, so actor friends knew my voice because they just recognize your voice no matter what accent you're doing, and I've done a lot of British stuff. But um, uh, I did an, a couple of TV interviews. My brother decided to call some local television and say, hey, my sister's doing this cool thing. <laughs> And so I, I was like, I'm going to kill him, yeah. But, because uh, I had to leave a party and run down to a TV station. But it was, so I got uh, a couple of TV interviews, and that connected a lot of people who wouldn't have known otherwise, who, you know, know me, see me in Target or something, and say, like, oh, I saw you, you're that voice, you know, stuff. So that was kind of cool, and my neighbors were all very excited about it, and I, you know. And how many people then asked you to do a sample when they were standing there? Do, do people walk up and say, can you do a line? Not all the time, but last year it happened on a number of occasions. Even in interviews, people would go, I do the voice. And I'm like, I don't think I can do the voice because I'm employed to do the voice. I, it's not my copy, you know what I mean? It, so I just kept saying, I'd rather not, thank you. Because you know? <laughs> I was going to say, like, some people, I don't think that there was a particular catchphrase because it changed all the time. There was not a the particular thing, a, a line no, that you would have been known it for. It always ends with a kind of crescendo roar of, you know, and we start now or right. we are back or something of that nature. But no, there's no, this is the thing. Although somebody told me, who, a friend who'd been to Vegas, and she, honest to God, swears she heard me as a ringtone. <laughs> See, like, you got to get true. I want it. <laughs> yeah, you got to get your own ringtone with that. <laughs> now, you did you make it down there for any games last year? Oh God, no. <laughs> would you mentioned about doing it live? Would you do it live? I would totally do it live. I would do it live on horseback on skates. <laughs> it would be so fun. That would be that would. I don't know if the horse would like it so much, but that would be absolutely fun to watch. Uh, I'm going to be. I think the Vegas people would be very disappointed when they heard me speak in a normal voice. <laughs> well, again, I would love for you to, you know, on the last day when you never ever want to do it again, to slip into the North Tonawanda accent and do it that way and just completely <laughs> throw them for a loop. Uh, let me be completely impolite for a second, and, and not to the dollar, but it, is this kind of thing lucrative, or is it more for the exposure and the fun and and a little money on the side? Well, as a Someone who works in the theater arts, um, lucrative is quite relative. It's it's not Silicon Valley money, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's a good paying gig for the time it takes me to do, and especially when there's more than one of them. I mean, all voiceover work 
is more money than you, you know, you do eight weeks of a play for X number of dollars, and you can make that much money in an hour doing voice. Nice. It's the right connection, you know, if it's the right gig. Nice. So it, it depends on, you know, how long it takes you or what the, uh, you know, upfront agreement is with the people, but it's, it's very nice work if you can get it. I love doing voiceovers because, you know, it's not very difficult, but it's skilled, and I like that too, that there's, it's, it's not like any, everybody can make the copy alive. No, I mean? like, no, absolutely not. So, no, it, um, I, I bet you. Th- and it's here's the thing. I think it's like a lot of other things. People believe that it's super easy and that everybody could do it until they have to sit down and try and do it and make it sing. And then you realize, no, no, there are people who know how to do this, and there are people who absolutely don't. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, acting is a weird thing to try to to have respect for because everybody can walk and talk. You know, you can right. walk around going, "How hard can it be?" Until you watch somebody's, no offense to anybody, but when they use their daughter for their car commercial or something, and you or, watch someone yeah. try to make mediocre copy sound amazing, and it just doesn't. So, you, you know, I, I know so many really good voiceover people, and they can break your heart with, a, you know, just the sentence and the microphone, and that's a skill. So, it, you know, it's really cool when that gets recognized and rewarded, and I'm, I'm really um, very happy to have hooked in with this particular gig, but... I like doing them for anything. Yeah, we don't always recognize great acting, but we always recognize terrible acting. Yes, that's true. <laughs> it is it's absolutely the, true. Oh my God, the impeccable accents in this play. It's always the one guy who can't do the Scottish. Yep. But you're going, he yep. doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't sound Scottish. He sounds like he has a speech impediment. What was that <laughs> one all about? I didn't know Robin Hood had a speech impediment. Who knew? <laughs> Um, exactly. So th- you then, have you become, you're in Buffalo, so by rights, by probably by definition, you are supposed to be a Sabres fan, but have you become a diehard Vegas fan, if only because every round they win gives you another opportunity? <laughs> well, it, it, I don't know, is that, a, is that a bad way to root for people? I, um, no, that I, sounds fair to me. <laughs> well, I have to say, like, I'm not a huge sports fan anyway, but I, you know, if the Sabres are on, I watch them and I would like to go to a game, I like to hear them doing well, the same as the Bills. But I also like the Boston Red Sox, and, and, and I became a Golden Knights person because I loved the Cinderella story, and I loved being part of it, and they, they treated me extremely well. Um, they sent me a beautiful scroll with player signatures at the end of really? the Really? Nice. Yes, and some other nice bling. Um, so, or swag, it's not bling, it's swag. <laughs> But see, here's what I think that you could actually do with this, and, and this may sound silly, but do, do you know who Michael Buffer is? Michael Buffer yeah. is the, the ring announcer, the let's get ready to rumble guys. Oh, who's God, be- yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know who he is. He, made on, uh, he has made a living simply by doing that one catchphrase, and I'm thinking you could go down to Vegas at some sort of wedding chapel and just do the voice with people walking, and you could make a living for the rest <laughs> of your life. Hey, if someone wants to pay me to do the voice, that would be Super. It, well, you, you never know. And here's the other thing: if you if if they keep having you back, and I certainly hope they do, because it's 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 fun. It's you know for the people you. Great s- fit. I mean, the, the nights because of the, the, the medieval connection. Right. And, and you s- fits so well. So and like you that. said off the top that some people were were critical about it, and I've heard that too. That oh, this is mocking hockey. It's sports. It's entertainment. It's fun. It's show business. It's all. It's it's good. I think it's hilarious. I think it's, it's fun. You wouldn't want it in Pittsburgh. It's not Pittsburgh. It's Vegas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I'm wondering if they keep having you back, if this thing becomes an ongoing thing for years and years, this is going to be the thing, maybe, and I don't know your whole career, but this may be the thing you you're remembered for. Of my obituary? Maybe. <laughs> what do you think? This could be what you're remembered for. 
You could be the Vegas lady, the Vegas <laughs> Knights lady. Well, it, yeah, when there was, there was some newspaper articles and stuff last year that called me the voice of the Golden Knights, and I was really like, ooh, that's a cool little, you know, title. I don't mind that. There are worse things that. to be called, Eileen. Absolutely, and the fans were rabid and excited and stuff, so it would be very cool, you know, to keep the connection and, you know, build on that relationship. I really enjoy it. Well, you can, uh, they begin on Wednesday, they begin tomorrow, they begin tonight. tonight, but their home game, their first home game is going to be Sunday night, so if you tune in, it's 10 o'clock on Sunday night, it is on, I believe it's on Sportsnet 360 up here in Canada, if you tune in and if they show the pregame, you will, I guess, hear Eileen back for a second year, which is fantastic, uh, and now you know the background to it. Eileen, I, I sincerely appreciate you taking a few minutes today to help us out. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for coming. That is Eileen Dugan. She is the, she's from Buffalo, not from England, not from Vegas, but she is the voice of the Golden Knights for their over-the-top, outrageous pregame shows. Great story. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a poll done of travel agents in England. So it's a very specific crew. I understand that. This is not a what, but, but it's a very good crew to ask this question. It's a very good group because it's very specific to traveling. And the question was, what is the most annoying, ignorant, ignorant was the word they use. What's the most ignorant thing you can do to, on a flight? If you are on an airplane, what is the th- most ignorant thing you can do to the people around you? That and and these things are commonly done. We're not talking about you know like streaking the aisles or something like nothing stupid like that. Things maybe that, not common for you, Scott. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I don't know what flights you go on. Uh, but based on commonly done things, what is the most ignorant thing that you can do on a flight? So what do you think? What would what would be in your list of guesses of of the things that would have shown up on this poll or this survey of the things that would have been among those? I'll tell you what the biggest one was in a minute. What do you think they would be? Okay, there is definitely, this is a really good question. Uh, definitely, um, you know, not, not bathing, caring for yourself appropriately beforehand if it's going to be a long flight. People who listen to this show all the time know my story of almost having to fly five hours next to someone with nose-curdling body odor. Yep. That would, see, that would have been number one on my list. Unquestionably, excellent, excellent one that you've you've counted. What else? Uh, I'm going to say probably incessantly bugging the flight staff, like, like constantly hitting the button every few minutes. Oh, I need this. Uh, reclining your chair, being a, an infant who cries. (laughs) I do not know if we can blame them. Um, see the thing about the infant that cries that that's the common one. That's the one that everybody always talks about. And as, as a parent who has flown with an infant, whose ears began to hurt when the descent started. I don't get upset with a parent ever, unless, unless we're not talking about a parent who's trying to comfort their child, but is letting their child just behave like a moron. Yeah. That's a different story, but a crying baby, I, oh man, I'll never be upset at a parent for that one, but continue on. What else? No, no, yeah, I would agree with that. The children, that, that is their own thing. Um, I also say probably a more modern one, but uh, but playing any sort of video game, iPad game, something like that with the sound turned up, that listening to one. music without using your headphones or any number of things where it's just you're not 
uh, you're not keeping it to yourself. How about watching a an inappropriate movie on the seat next to you? The person next to you watching something that's like really not appropriate. <laughs> I haven't had that happen, but when you mentioned having yeah. the sound up, I suddenly thought, well, what if someone decided to watch a really gnarly movie? Yeah. That might be ignorant. That would be ignorant. <laughs> that's uh, one of the things. Check with your seatmate, maybe? Yeah. Some other things that people have included that were on the poll were taking off your shoes and socks. Yeah. I would agree with that one. That goes with the body odor, yeah. Uh, getting really hammered drunk. That would be one because that's, and again, there are things that I don't count in the list if you have no control over them. So if you get air sick and you have to barf into the barf bag, that's, that's, that's out of your control. But if you get, if you go up there and decide to get loaded, that's something else altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, snoring. Again, not really in your control, I guess. I could see that being annoying. I don't know if that would be ignorant. You uh, could buy those nose strips, but no, that's like crying baby. Lack of spatial awareness. Someone who falls asleep on your shoulder <laughs> or who hogs both of the armrests. That one I could see. Hogging, yeah. Fly, falling asleep on your shoulder, that's a risk of flying. Number one, though. The number one thing that the travel agents said was the most ignorant thing you can do on an airplane, and you already said it. Reclining your seat. Mm-hmm. They, according to English travel agents, the English etiquette, and I don't know if this counts worldwide, but the English etiquette is that if your flight is no is not four hours or longer, you are not to recline your seat. Really? They even have a time frame. If it's long enough that you now are probably going to have a meal and it's either cross country or cross the ocean or something else, maybe overnight, that may be a situation... But here's the thing. We got to go. I am behind. Here's the thing. Even if it's four hours, you should recline your seat then, A, gently. As a tall person who's sitting back, recline your seat gently. Maybe look behind you and see how tall the person is behind you. And don't recline at the moment you get on the plane. Yep. All right. Like when it's time to recline the seat and, and be polite or re- respectful or kind about it as opposed to just plowing the thing back into the person in front of you. But anyway, that that would be number two for me. The BO is one, but number two would be the seat reclining, the reclination. They agree. Radley at 900chml.com. What would be your list? What would be on yours? I'd love to hear from you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900chml. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.